Hey, fuck demons and all of the deviants defining elite community. It has been a wonderful exactly two years of running this podcast. And while I've had a lot of fun, I have decided to end it. And I'm going to give you the reasons why I've decided to end it. The first reason is that I am basically a constant creative content mill right now, and I'm finding it to be a little bit exhausting. So I have to clear out some of the projects that, while they're super fun, aren't necessarily contributing to any long-term business growth for myself right now. And so this means that this is one project that has to be said goodbye to. It's just a lot of work trying to schedule guests with all of the conflicting schedules. And so that's been one factor. And the other thing is reading the news is really fucking depressing sometimes. So I'm trying to clear out some mental space. That being said, I hope you've really enjoyed the past two years with me. Obviously, feel free to reach out um, at any point. And because it's the two-year anniversary and episode 69 and my final goodbye, I have a very special guest for you today. On that note, over to the main episode. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back, Fuck Demons, to our last final episode, episode 69. And for episode 69, I have a very special guest for you. Today's guest is someone who runs a very successful daycare, my mom, Sherry Sharashevsky. She has been a registered early childhood educator and working in the field of early childhood education for over 30 years and currently directs the early childhood education department at a community center in Toronto, a fairly well-known one, I should add, which is different than the successful daycare that you ran when I first started recording my podcast. Right. It's a different one now that is equally successful. Yes. Yeah. And mom can't say it, but the old one fell to shit after she left. That's right. She also has a certificate in children's mental health. Mom, would you like to say hello to all the fuck demons? Hi, everybody. I'm delighted to be here for episode number 69. My mom is a lovely woman with a good sense of humor and also a prude, so she will never call you a fuck demons. A group of fuck demons? Yeah. I I don't think I've heard you say that word. What? The word fuck demon? Oh, you did it. I'm proud of you. (laughs) You say the word fuck and my whole... We used to get grounded for saying shut up. That was then. Okay. (laughs) All right. So today's article, I'm going to summarize it. You can interrupt me whenever you want or save your thoughts for after. But it is called Sex Educator Defends Book That Asks Kids to Draw Private Places. It is from Times Colonist, May 18th, 2022, which is a little local newspaper, which is where I get most of my news that isn't devastating. Um, This hubbub is because of a worksheet from a sex ed class that was posted to social media. The worksheet, which asks students to draw a picture of the private places where you can touch your penis or vulva if you want to, was distributed to kindergarten students at Talisalagi Lock School in Namgis First Nations as part of a physical health body safety education program. The original Facebook post has been removed. However, a Twitter post sharing the image uh, and indicating that students had been sent home with a masturbation assignment, received just over 13,000 likes and was retweeted about 5,500 times. And obviously, officials are investigating. The worksheet came from a 94-page sexual abuse prevention program workbook called Body Smart Right from the Start and is designed for kids 3 to 8 and was written by certified sex educator Carrie Isham. Isham says the workbook is intended for children and parents to work through together. The page shared on social media is about teaching kids where it is safe to touch themselves, she said, noting that all families have different rules about masturbation. Some kids like to touch their private parts and some don't. That's true. There's no debate over that, she said in a quote. And if you're going to do that, you can only do that in a private place. Where are your private places? And then they draw a picture of their bathroom or their bedroom. 
Isham said she has received hateful emails and death threats since the post went viral, but she's adamant that sexual education helps to keep children safe. And we end with a quote, which is, teaching early does not strip our children of their innocence, she said, but sexual abuse will. Hey, mom. Yes. Do kids in daycares masturbate? They do sometimes. They do sometimes. Normally, it is at nap time uh, when they're on their cots. And um, when that happens, if that happens, the teachers will usually suggest that they go under the covers if they're not. Um, and they may suggest that they do that at home. They, they talk about it and they say, you know, something that maybe you could should do at home. And they'll usually have a conversation with parents about it as well, that their child's doing that. Not in any way at our my centers, not in any way that's negative, just that this is something that's happened. It's normal. Um, and that they told the children that it's something that they should be doing at home um, in private. Um, not much more detail than that because it doesn't really need it. Um, usually parents take it very well and they may laugh or they may say, oh, yeah, they do that at home, too. Um, some parents are not as comfortable, um, but it's certainly a conversation that we'll have because it is a very natural thing for children to do. It feels good. It's soothing. And um, even babies will do it because there's a pleasure feeling that they get when certain areas are touched and it's just normal. Um, I don't, what's the word for when it's like not yet born, but not quite a fetus? Is it still a fetus? That like last third trimester thing? Depends on who you talk to. Well, those, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the pre-birth fetus, mm -hmm. whatever that is, they'll masturbate in your utero. This is, can you tell I don't teach pregnancy very often? <laughs> well, that's news to me. I never heard about that. Yeah. But... There's like actual images of like, like these, these fetus forms, these pre-humans um, masturbating in utero because it's that natural and, and inherent to, to like being a human being. Yeah, pretty much. You sucked your thumb. I did. Yes. That's we had correct. pictures of that in utero. That's cute. Mm -hmm. Good. Good to know. Um, <laughs> my, uh, so I guess my thing is when you had a parent that maybe had a different value system than what you were talking about them with, how did that go? What happened? Well, so sometimes teachers are very comfortable talking about these things, and sometimes teachers are not comfortable talking about these things. Um, and often it's because they know the parents well and they know how they're going to react. Um, if they're concerned about what the parent reaction will be, then they usually ask me to have that conversation. Um, generally, parents are quite open. Uh, the parents I've come into contact with are quite open, and, and um, you know, it doesn't particularly phase them. Um, and it's often something that they've seen at home. Um, and, you know, it's just that reassurance that it's normal and it's natural and kids do it. And this is the conversation about just finding places that are private. Um, if a child's doing this at, at daycare and they're underneath their blankets and often we just let them be, um, it just depends. It depends. But the parents are usually pretty cool with it. And in the city that we live in. Yeah. Which, I mean, when I was doing my sex ed education course, one of the lead educator who was doing all of our, our seminars, she was saying that most parents are actually perfectly fine with their kids getting sex ed from schools. And most parents want schools to provide that kind of an education because they don't feel equipped to start that conversation and they need to have something to base it off of. Um, and there's this perception that all parents are going to be very angry if you teach sex ed in schools or if you talk about sex at all or if you talk about masturbation or anything like that. What do you think? I think that part of the problem is that, particularly with younger children, it's being called sex ed. 
I think that the type, the naming or the titling of what the children are learning about is problematic because, you know, historically, when you think about sex ed, you think about learning about putting a condom on a banana and learning about either abstinence or I don't know exactly what they're teaching now, but, you know, probably still abstinence, but it shouldn't be. And, um, you know, things about sexually transmitted illnesses and things like that. So obviously that's not what we're talking about in early childhood. We're talking about body parts, correct names for body parts. We're talking about, you know, safe touches and, and private touches and, you know, consent in, in a very basic way. Um, even things like educators asking a child if they want a hug, not just giving them one. So teaching at a very, very basic level that it's your own body and you have the right to say how it's touched or how it's not touched. Um, you know, so when parents understand that, often the um, the stress or the concern dissipates somewhat. Yeah, well, this was when Doug Ford first got elected. Um, there was a lot of misinformation being spread about the sex ed curriculum that had been passed by the liberals. And if you got a translation of it, it was they're teaching your four-year-olds about, um, you know, gay sex. Like that's what was being spread around in order to say we need to repeal this because it was people who didn't necessarily speak English as a first language or didn't understand the system because they were new to the country who were the ones who were part of his constituents that were adamantly advocating for the sex ed curriculum to be repealed. But it was coming from a place of misinformation. Exactly. Not a place of accurate, accurate information on what's being taught to kids, which is the same way that when you are learning your ABCs, you're not reading or writing essays in grade one. No one's teaching kids higher level things in grade one when first it's, this is your elbow, this is your vulva. Um, what do you think about uh, teaching kids where the clitoris is or what a clitoris is? Um, well, I think if it's part of naming body parts, then it's a very natural thing. Um, I feel like the children that the youngest children that I typically deal with, we're looking more at the body parts that they can see directly um, or to a certain extent feel, um, you know, whether or not clit the clitoris is something that um, we're teaching them is probably, we're probably not because I, I wonder how many of our educators are that familiar with their own bodies, um, which is also problematic. Um, right. That the educators don't themselves know how to educate. Yeah. And some, some educators, you know, are much more comfortable with all these topics than others are. And, um, I typically will send my staff on professional development that does, look at these kinds of things. There are a lot of workshops for early childhood educators around, you know, sex education for young children and, you know, talking to parents about difficult, having difficult conversations with parents. And some of those conversations may relate to, you know, stuff to do with sex and bodies and things like that. And some are about other things like their child biting somebody. But those are all parts of things that children do and all parts of things that teachers have to have a conversations with parents about. So we want to try and make them as comfortable as possible in terms of the language and in terms of the labeling. I think it depends on the age group and I think it depends on the context. It's always about context. Yeah, always. Speaking of, I think it's every educator, sex educator or not, it is their worst nightmare for a parent to take something out of context and post it all over the internet. 
Yeah. And I mean, when I was reading this article, you know, one of the things that I kind of highlighted was, you know, that the author said that if she was a parent and received the page from the workbook without context, she would be surprised too. And I think that the whole idea, because I did a little bit of research on the workbook and what it was for, what it was meant for the audience, target audience. Um, it's very clear that this workbook is meant to be a conversation starter for parents and children to work through together. It's not really supposed to be something that pages of it are being sent home for the children to do, or potentially even something that a conversation is had in a classroom, and then this is put down on the table and the children are left to their own devices. It's something that an adult is supposed to work through with them. And I think that it's something that also needs to be discussed and explained to parents before a teacher starts using something like this, because if a teacher starts using a booklet like this or a workbook like this without a conversation so that parents know what the children are doing in school, then parents are understandably going to be concerned and upset. Um, I think it's all about open conversation, being transparent, hearing what parents' concerns are, addressing those concerns, um, and sending things home ahead of time, especially if it's something that's so um, emotionally charged as what children are learning in school about sex education, for lack of a better way of, you know, terming it. Um, and, and definitely this would be something that in my school, as part of our parent curriculum night, we would be talking about with the parent body saying as part of, you know, learning about the world and learning about ourselves, it's not just about what, what's your name? What are your parents' names? What are your common body parts? We're also looking at these kinds of things. And here is a workbook that we're planning to use. It's something that parents can be using as well at home. And we're happy to send it home so that we can do this together. It's all about partnerships. There's one context clue here that I think was interesting, which is this was a First Nations school with First Nations kids, mm -hmm. um, which we, I believe, call Indigenous in Canada, but there's different terminology in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I found interesting is that the Indigenous communities are actually at a very high risk for abuse, um, sexual abuse. Uh, you know, we have the missing Indigenous women. Uh, indigenous women are more likely to have to do survival sex work mm -hmm. or just, you know, or get trafficked because of the, the way that our institutions have set these communities up for failure historically. So here is a community bringing in a sexual abuse educator trying to undo some of the harm that's been caused and one parent takes offense and posts it on the internet. So I thought it was just an interesting, you know, like this is one community doing everything that you're supposed to do and the educator gets punished. Although, I'm, I mean, she's not getting punished, but you know that the school is now going to have to defend their choices and I don't think a school should ever have to defend its choice to teach kids to not be sexually, like how to how to prevent sexual abuse, you know? Yeah. And I, I think the other context to consider too, particularly here, is everything that's going on right now with the residential schools and the abuses that took place there um, and the, the long-term generational fallout from that. And, you know, while it's an amazing... Um, initiative to do this, I think it has to be handled very carefully. And I don't know, based on what I've read, that it was. I don't think there was any real conversation or explanation to parents. Um, I mean, and as it says in the article, the education ministry curriculum outlines the need for education about bodies and safety for children in kindergartens through grade 10. 
but teachers choose their own resources and topics. I don't think this was a bad resource. I think that it may not have been communicated well. Yeah. And it's always about communication. And in this kind of a community, I think it would have been even more important. I think there's a sense that when you send your kids to school, that it's that person's job to educate your kids. So you send them to school, they get what they need, they come home, you don't need to do any more work to teach your kid anything. Um, which is, you know, some parents are working too much to be able to be more hands-on with the education of their kids. But I do think that when it comes to things like sex ed, because of the way that it's been, like the way that our society is formed puritanically to a certain extent in these conversations we're having, you know, parents want more control over this conversation. So they need to be more hands-on. They need to be looking into these things and they need to be part of the conversation. But what I've noticed is that educating your kids or kids in general is just about as much about educating the parents. Because there are so many parents where their sex ed is outdated. They don't know this oh, either. Sure. They don't know anything. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to spot grooming versus education, right? And so some of that is also not, and I, that's why this workbook I think was designed to be done with parents because it's also teaching the parents along with the kids Absolutely. and helping them form those conversations. Yeah, and I mean, it was a really short article and there isn't a lot of information about what what was communicated to parents prior to this workbook being used. You know, did they see it before? Did they, you know, did they know what was going to be discussed in in the course and um you know sexual education teaches children and youth about all aspects of sexuality which includes cognitive set emotional physical social aspects and that's something that's outlined by unesco which is the united nations educational scientific and cultural organization um, and that is a right of all children to learn about but again, it always comes down to having conversations with parents, to making sure parents understand and have an opportunity to ask questions. Um, you know, now more than ever before, and even when you and your siblings were young, you know, children are able and they do access all sorts of things because of the internet, social media, um, and it's gotten more and more available to them, you know, because of tablets and because of the way phones, phones are, yeah. the smartphones and stuff. And it's really important for them from as young as possible to have very positive open communication with their parents and other trusted adults. And parents, I think parents now are more open to those kinds of conversations. Not all, but a lot of parents are more open to it. And again, I know I keep saying it and I'm repeating myself, and it, if these things are also being discussed at school, there's got to be partnerships with parents so that that communication goes both ways there as well. Um, you know, a lot of parents are afraid and, and other adults are afraid that, you know, if we teach children about sexual education, about their bodies when they're really young, that they're going to be more sexually active, much younger. And the research has shown that this doesn't happen. They don't become sexualized or engage in sexual activity younger because of sexual education. They are more aware of, of what's okay and what's not okay, what's private, what's not private. And the whole issue of consent, of knowing that they can say no and that they should tell somebody if something makes them feel uncomfortable. Well, they, yeah, even with teenagers, you'll have more teenagers choosing not to have sex because they feel empowered to say yes or no when they're ready. There's not an external pressure or force making them feel like they have to do this to be popular or cool or not quite understanding what's going on. And when you have, you know, people who actually understand consent and all of that part of the conversation, you have people who are generally a bit more respectful 
This is outside of weird hookup culture experiences, which I will get into probably another time, but... Yeah, and there there's a really strong link between comprehensive sexual education in schools from a very young age and a positive sexual health po and positive sexual health behaviors in teenagers. Um, and I think that comes from making sure that the sex ed that they're getting in school is developmentally appropriate for their age, um, uses language that's accessible, um, and that gives them an opportunity to ask questions in a safe environment, um, whether it's in a group setting or individually with the teacher, which also is important to discuss because the educators need to receive training that's specialized, you know, and that they're supported to be able to teach sexual and health education um, in a knowledgeable, confident way um, that is not including misinformation, that they have the correct information and that they're comfortable discussing it. Well, circling back to my earlier question for you, this is one of the reasons why there's this discussion around teaching about the clitoris when you're teaching body parts, because a lot of our sex ed is very much focused on male pleasure, because if you're focusing on babies, that's focusing on the male orgasm. And also when you're teaching body parts, when you're naming them, you are teaching boys the names of their pleasure organs, as well as uh, like sexual pleasure organs specifically. But um, we don't teach this to young girls, which means that when you are trying to have a more equitable sexual education experience when they're older, it's just embarrassing for everybody because they're just learning about the clitoris for the first time. Yeah. And I think, I think that one of the things to keep in mind too, is that, you know, regardless of how detailed you get into the biology of it, um, girls need to know what their body parts are called, whether you're, you know, labeling a vagina, whether you're labeling labia, whether you're labeling a clitoris, they have to have some level of vocabulary to talk about those things from the beginning. And then you can always add the more detailed um, labels and terms for body parts. But, you know, at, at the very youngest age, they need to at least know what their body parts are called biologically and not, you know, some of the cutesy names that parents will use because either they're embarrassed or they think, you know, they've got time to teach them the the quote-unquote real words, um, you know. Every boy knows the word penis. And yeah. yet so many girls don't know the word vulva or vagina. They know so many cutesy words for it. But every young boy knows the word penis. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no stigma around that word in the same way that there seems to be around female body parts. And obviously that goes back to the whole culture of, you know, the male gaze and and you're going to like me using this word, the patriarchy. Yes. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, and that's why it is so important for educators, even early childhood educators, to have the right labels, to have the right tools, to have the right knowledge. Um, well, I've met adult women who are more comfortable saying the word pussy than they are vulva or vagina, which, by the way, it is the vulva that we're usually referring to. The vagina is the tunnel. Yep. No one is no one is usually talking about the vagina when they're talking about the vagina. But I've met adult women who would rather say pussy than vulva and i i hate that word personally i'm I like hate that word i, I think it's word. so like i don't know pornographic almost yeah like i i that we know that word because of porn not because of colloquial usage in any way we don't hear people calling it that in in movies unless there's usually like other words like box or cunt or like other funny swear words Another but word i hate yeah which one <laughs> box no the other one oh, okay don't say that word the brits love it <laughs> or is it the australians i, I think know. it's the australians 
Um, yeah, but, and that's, that's what I'm, I mean, you're not going to have a parent teaching your child those words, but you're going to hear all sorts of other things, you know, the VJJ or the VG was the, the VG one in the elementary school. Or your PP, you know, yeah. things like that. It's not your PP. It's that's not your, where you're, yeah, that's not where, not your where you're peeing from. from. Your urethra, urethra and, you know. Or as Alex calls it, the uridi. <laughs> well, okay. Also not an accurate <laughs> term. Yeah. But, <laughs> but then again, he's not teaching children. No, so. he's just being silly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you've raised three kids mm-hmm. from from birth to adulthood. We all survived. You did. None of us are in prison, despite our initial assumptions. <laughs> We've all made it. You have. <laughs> We're productive members of society. How did your conversations around sex and, se- sex and sexuality change? Or your opinions about what should be discussed? Like, what has changed for you? So let me p- take you back to the time of my childhood, where... My mother, who was significantly older than the average parent at that time, because she was 40 when I was born, at a time when 40-year-olds not only didn't have children, but if they got pregnant, were encouraged to end the pregnancy because nothing good could come out of it. And yet here I am, and I don't think I'm bad. So, um, you know, you could disagree as my daughter, but I think I've done all right. Well, you're on my podcast, so clearly I like you. (laughs) Well, that's good to know. Um, So my mother never talked to me about any of this stuff. Um, When I asked about where babies came from, she sent me off to my sister who was 13 years older than I was. So, you know, she was already in her late teens, early twenties by that time. Um, And I mean, I kind of liked the way she handled it, which was that she asked me what I knew and then she worked on filling in some of the other details, but were the, the language that was used around my body was, you know, breasts were breasts but nothing under the waist was really discussed and I educated myself because I did not want to have children that I could not teach properly um, about these kinds of things and I felt that it was incredibly important to build open communication right from the word go where you know nothing was off limits I don't think anything was really off limits and that my children felt comfortable coming to tell me the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that, you know, I would try not to um, speak to them with judgment um, so that they would feel comfortable coming to me because I figured if anything ever happened that either they didn't know what something was, they didn't feel comfortable about something, or something bad happened, I wanted them to know they could come to me and that I would be um, able to have a conversation with them to protect them, to defend them, whatever they needed, but that they could come to me. And I think that overall, the language that was used was pretty accurate. Um, There were words that I didn't use because I didn't know them at the time. Um, And so those kinds of things we kind of learned together, I think. Um, But I think in learning together, they also saw that it was okay to not know things and to find out, but to do it in a healthy way. You know, and and so I feel that, you know, I really had a home where my children felt comfortable talking about these things openly. I know their friends certainly did because they would come and talk to me about things they would never talk to their parents about. And some of them still do. Some of them still do use me as their, you know, surrogate parent. Um, And I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that they feel that way. Um, I remember. Well, yeah, I remember one time picking up the phone for one of my best friends. 
I was like, hey, what's up? They're like, uh, can I actually talk to your mom? And I was like, yeah, no problem. It was like, mom, it's for you. And I like, you're like, are you offended? I'm like, no, 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 here you go. She needs you right now. Like she needs a parent expert. And I remember just loving the fact that I had the mom that everyone knew is that everyone else wanted to talk to. And I think it helps that we did have that good relationship and we did tell each other everything. I think you got it right 90% of the time. There was 10%, a little bit of slut shaming occasionally, but I think that was also because you were raised in a certain way. So there was some unlearning yourself that had to happen that you don't do until you have teenage girls who put it in your face. Like, true. Something like that. But I would say 90% of Some of, some of them, my children tested me in some ways more than others. In different... We all each tested you in different ways. <laughs> yes. I would say. I think it's made me a better early childhood educator and a better person for speaking to parents in my... You know, in the, the work that I do. And even the teachers in the work that I do. Um, so thank you for that. Because you had such diverse children with diverse challenges. Uh, to, I don't know if I... Well, yeah, I guess you could call them challenges. Why not? Okay. Experiences. <laughs> experiences. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. But I would say, yeah, you definitely got it right most of the time to the point where when I was thinking of losing my virginity, I think I told you first. Mm -hmm. I told you before the guy knew. I was like, no, I'm going to talk to my mom first before it happens. And like, he was weirded out by that. He's like, just do it. He was an asshole. We all know that he was an asshole, but he was being weird and pressury about it. The more Mm -hmm. he, thanks to the way you raised me, the more he tried to pressure me, the longer I made him wait. Because I was like, nope, if you're going to make me feel like this, then this isn't the right time. And, you know, you instilled that, yeah, you instilled that confidence. So the fact that I didn't lose my, my, or I guess I I should say I had my sexual debut at a reasonable time, but I didn't do the PIV thing until we'd had like a conversation about it. And you were like, well, I wish you wouldn't like your response was, I wish you wouldn't, but I trust you and respect you and you can make your own decisions. And so I did. And I always felt confident to make them. Yep. And look at me now. And look at you now, a sexual health educator. That's right. Trying to empower other people to making their own decisions. But there's something to be said for that open, honest communication. There were many of my peers who were having, I think, out of my friend group, they all used to make fun of me for being the last one. But I think that being the last, well, first of all, being the last one isn't a bad thing. I want to add two things, which was I absolutely was not the last one. No. Because there were lots of kids my age who were not having, who were not having sex at that time, who lost their, or had their sexual debuts in university even, and Mm -hmm. did PIV for the first time in university. But there was certainly this perception amidst my friend group that like, I was the last one. My friend Maya at one point was like, finally, we can talk about things again. And when I brought that up with her again, now they're older, she's like, I was a dick. We were dumb teenagers. Like that was obnoxious. And I'm like, as long as we can all acknowledge that. Yeah. (laughs) But I remember feeling like literally like everyone else around me was doing so much sooner, but it wasn't necessarily things they wanted to be doing. Maya's an exception. She was always only ever doing what she wanted to be doing. And she had a similar upbringing. to do so. That's correct. And she had a similar upbringing. Uh, but all of my other friends who were doing things that they didn't feel ready for had parents that were not having these conversations, creating a household where there was a lot of shame or stigma or just not that open communication without feeling like you would be punished. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think that, you know, there was this study that was done in um, where was this? Um, Istanbul, of all places. Um, and they actually did a study of doctors and nurses to find out what their knowledge was about sexual development and education for preschool children. And um, it was really quite interesting because, you know, the period of the period between the ages of zero and six, which is known as early childhood or preschool is really critical because kids learn the fastest at that time. And the basis of a child's personality is formed and they really need guidance from a source that's knowledgeable about these areas of development. And sometimes it's parents going to their doctors and their pediatricians saying, you know, 
this has come up and I don't know what to do. Or my child asked me this question and I don't know what to do. What do I say? And, you know, the idea of sexuality is, you know, generally attributed to adolescents and it's separate from kept separate from children because it's considered, you know, when you talk about sexuality, um, really it brings to mind sex, sex intercourse and being sexual and reproduction. And of course, preschoolers are not having sex and having babies. Right. But it starts there. It starts there. And parents well, also, have to have the place to go. And so anyone that has um, any way of anyone who's who's working with families that have young children needs to be knowledgeable, you know, and I mean, it comes back to the article that we started talking about, which is there's nothing wrong with having that kind of education or those kinds of conversations with children from a young age and parents have to be involved. Yeah. All this, the way, including this as, as adolescents and adults. Yeah, this conversation also implies that the only information a child could ever need or want is medical or about the body. But we're forgetting about that emotional component, which is what Absolutely. this workbook was also working on, is a lot of the emotional components around sex, sexuality. And one of the big hot topics right now in the in the like non-monogamy community is attachment theory. And or even just relationship and sexuality coaching in general, but specifically like this book came out fairly within the past five years, Polysecure, which I believe I, I lent to you, but it's specifically talking about attachment theory and how it relates to forming adult relationships or multiple relationships, but attachment theory and, and, and relationships are very big right now. And it's literally talking about how children attach their parents in early childhood and how that impacts your relationships as an adult. Absolutely. So if we want to be talking about healthy relationships with teenagers, we need to be talking about healthy relationships and parenting kids in a certain way. Like I have run into people who have literally said the words to me, well, my parents beat me when I was a kid and look at me, I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> they have anxiety. They're conflict avoidant. They don't know how to resolve conflicts and never learned how to resolve those conflicts. And it's like, I mean, yeah, maybe you're doing fine, but you have all these other things going on that that are related in some way to those early childhood experiences. And making a statement like that also implies that, you know, beating your child is an option. Um, and it's not. It's not. Even if you were raised that way and you feel like you're fine, the same way that not having these kinds of conversations about anything to do with child development um, it all should be a level playing field. Anything should be open to conversation, um, you know, so that everybody's comfortable having these conversations. And unfortunately, there are still a lot of countries and cultures around the world where these kinds of conversations just do not happen. Women are not treated in the same way. Um, you know, they're not seen as, as human beings. They're seen still as property. Um, they're not educated. Um, and so... These kinds of conversations are not going to happen. And, you know, even though there's the internet and social media, what what's being filtered, right? Because there are ways to filter these things. I mean, there are a lot of countries that filter what their population is able to see. So, you know, it, it perpetuates it. You know, people leave countries to go to other countries and they come with no real knowledge of what's appropriate. Oh, that's or open. That's I have definitely had certain experiences with that. Well, that's the same thing where where if you have someone who doesn't speak the language or know the culture, uh, there are certain European countries that when people want to immigrate, they have to take a cultural course upon immigration to learn how things work in this country. It's smart. 
Yeah. And also even just uh, learning how our systems work. Where do you go when you need what? Yeah. The fact that you can, where do you go for an OHIP card? If you're eligible for an OHIP card now, where do you find that information? OHIP is our insurance card for those not listening from the province of Ontario, Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of those kinds of systems are part of it. And then there are those cultural value things that they educate people on in other countries that I think would be important for here. Definitely. Definitely. Um, And that goes back to the whole idea of making sure that whoever's working with children and parents is educated enough to be positive and be able to have conversations with parents about what the children are going to learn and to be able to answer the questions and provide the resources that the parents need so that they can all be working together. Um, One of the things that I found really interesting when I was doing some looking on the internet was that this person um, that wrote the the um, workbook is doing does some um, workshops and the workshops this particular one was for teachers was for young for educators um, and I thought that the description was absolutely amazing and I wonder if this was ever presented to the child to the parents sorry in the class that this that the teacher's now in trouble. Um, or being investigated, because what it says, and this is so true, is self-esteem, body language, how we relate to others, and our overall identity are all intertwined with our sexuality. And it goes on to say, despite the importance of sexuality in our lives, we're often uncomfortable talking about these issues, and it doesn't have to be this way. So the woman, this Carrie Isham, who um, does these power-up workshops, Um, says it's never too early to start preparing for some of the important discussions around sexual health and these workshops give educators and she does them for parents as well the right tools um, to deal with some of these awkward conversations developing open conversations and communication with your children from a very early age Um, and in this particular one it's for the educators in a fun and relaxed atmosphere for them to increase their knowledge motivation and skills to help young people achieve optimal sexual health. And that's what it comes down to. It's not about sexual education. It's about sexual health. Have you noticed that the school system is designed to prepare young people to be successful adults in every area, except for sex ed? I mean, obviously good education will, but uh, your average teacher in teacher's college, they get 40 minutes of how to teach sex ed in the entire year of what they're taught. That's it? They get 40 minutes. Yeah. And that's it, 40 minutes. And the TDSB is not hiring external educators to come in and do that portion for them. They completely dropped it over the pandemic because it just wasn't important, even though kids were still going through puberty during the pandemic. Let's just throw that out there. Oh, yeah. And I know teenagers who were still sexually active during the pandemic, despite their parents' wishes. Um, there's, There's a lot that's been going on. And so that's like a huge swath of the population that's not getting what they need. But We don't spend most of our lives as children, theoretically. We spend most of our lives as adults. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to be a sexually active and sexually healthy adult, then why are we not preparing people for this properly? Which which every good educator and every good system is, even the government of Canada says, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. But just because our our main institutions are saying we're supposed to be doing it doesn't mean it's actually manifesting in the day-to-day in the actual school. So I think that that's a really good point. And I also think that there's never, it's never too late um, to learn and to have these conversations and to start building a comfort level with having these conversations. And I think that people like you that do this kind of work are really important because 
there are so many people that are adrift on a float somewhere in the middle of the ocean, not really knowing where to go, right? And and what to do and how to navigate all these kinds of things, whether it's, you know, about having conversations with potential partners um, about consent or about, you know, what they like or what they don't like or what they want or what they don't want, um, you know, or or just in general, being able to talk to their children and build those, you know, that open communication. Um, there need to be people that do the kind of work that you're doing, the sexual health educate, education, to be able to hopefully help people to become more comfortable with these kinds of conversations. Because that's my feeling on it. <laughs> that's a great spot to take a short break for a commercial. And then we'll be back with our listener question. This is your casual, super chill reminder that we have podcast swag. Do you want a hat that says fuck demon? We have those, among other items. You can find them through sharewithray.com slash merch or head to my Etsy store, Send Nudes by Ray. We are back. And our listener question today is actually my question for you, my mom. Uh Uh-oh. So I get a lot of questions from people on the internet, like, what does your husband think about this? Or did you have a bad relationship with your parents? Or were you raised in a household that was, you know, stagnated your sexuality and that's why you're like this now? Mm-hmm. And these are obviously from people who think that because I'm a sex educator who talks openly about sex, this means that I'm just this wild, wacky... I mean, I did work at a sex club for eight years, but clearly this was always where I was meant to be. Anyway, so I guess my question for you is, can you answer it once and for all? I will have a recording, a recorded evidentiary moment for everybody. What do you think about what I do? I think it's... I do a lot of different things. Yeah, so can we be a little more specific about which one, which thing you're talking about? Why don't we go, we're going to go one at a time in order of Uh as they introduce my life. Uh Uh-oh. I think number one actually was latex. The Mm -hmm. latex fetish we're designing. I thought it was really interesting. I thought that it was very creative and really out of the box thinking, considering you went into fashion and discovered you hated working with fabric and sewing. Um, And you found a way to really... Um, embrace fashion, but in a way that you enjoyed. Um, and some of the things that you've, well, everything you've created has been really amazing. And I'm very proud of you. Okay, next thing. I started working at a sex club, I think when I was 19 years old. And you went, hmm, I'm going to come check it out. And then you checked it out. And I think I gave you a tour at 11am on a Tuesday. And then you said, okay, I'm going home now. So that part. Um. That one's a little bit trickier. Um, I think that as an adult, you are able to make your own choices as to the places that you want to work and the kinds of things that you want to do. Um, And while it may not be something that I'm comfortable with or that I would do, um, you enjoyed it and, you know, you worked there for a long time. And I don't have to necessarily like all the things that, all the jobs that you do. Um, But I respect that you stick to your values and you do, you do you. Yeah. I mean, well, working there was fun because I got to be like a camp counselor, but Mm -hmm. for adults, which was really fun for a long, people don't think sex club camp, but like I was being, I was a program, I was running, I was running games. I was playing games with adults, which was super fun. But the other thing is they're actually the ones who started teaching me about STIs. They had someone come in and give STI education and they did a lot of consent education. And I think a lot of what I learned about the nuances of consent, I learned because I worked there in my early 20s. And if I hadn't had that experience, as uncomfortable as it made so many people, I don't think I would be 
where I am today with the knowledge that I have today. And I think that um, one of the things that I did appreciate about where you were working is the fact that it was very body positive and for the most part, and it was very, um, it was safe. It was safe for women. Yeah. They made, they put a lot of effort into making it very safe for women. And I think that that made a big difference for me um, than if it hadn't been set up in that way. Yeah. I just, uh, it's always frustrating to me when you get all these assumptions from people when you work at a sex club. Like the family never asked me anything about it because they were so uncomfortable that they didn't bother to ask like, well, what do you like about working there? Because I didn't want to think about it and didn't think about it as this like space that was really good for uh, just promoting really uh, like healthy connections to yourself and others. Don't hold your breath. It ain't coming. Oh, I know. (laughs) They'll never listen to this episode either. Um, so, okay. So that's sex club. I did that for eight years. And then I, what else was there? Okay. And then the pandemic hit and I decided to switch over to being at Oasis theoretically full time and then pandemic. So that didn't happen. So I started the OnlyFans, which don't worry, you don't need to tell me your opinion. You did not love that, but I was making some okay money off of it. I don't want to know. Well, my rule was I would never post anything that would be uncomfortable with my parents seeing if it got leaked on the internet, if that helps you. But what I'm uncomfortable with you seeing is different than what you're uncomfortable seeing very much so but it was the kind of thing where if my parents or if a family member saw it on the internet uh, I it's the kind of thing where like they would click away but I wouldn't be like oh my god I can never look them in the eye again that was my general boundary for that that's good to know yep just so you know um but yeah okay so that one that one we've discussed what else was there I was doing I mean the podcast obviously you liked you're here mm-hmm. okay. and I listened okay so obviously the sex ed you were very supportive of but you can share I think people now after this whole thing have known your opinion the sexuality coaching have you have we talked about that that no, i work with not really oh i'm helping a bunch of people actually actually quite a few people um in different ways so my primary demographic right now is straight men and it will probably continue to be straight men i do dating app overhauls so i teach people how to improve their chances online through the tangible skills of dating mm-hmm. like how to take a good photo how to write a good bio how to form connection And then I do a lot of like follow up on like actually reaching out, engaging with people, forming points of connection, how to transfer from like DMing people to real life dates. And but I never gone on. You've gone with people to help them to to sort of coach them or shadow them. Yeah. To different places. That's correct. I have also helped people at certain sexual lifestyle places who wanted a friend because I'm not an escort, despite people's assumptions. Um, but I have like helped people who want like a friend to go to those spaces so that they can learn how to navigate them by themselves, but do it with someone who's familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, cause not everyone has a friend who's willing to go with them and is familiar. Mm-hmm. So I've done that. And then I have a few, like I've worked with a few couples just helping them work on their communication. And I have also worked with 50 year old men who really struggled with where their sex life was and had and changing it in a way that wouldn't make their wives feel attacked because every time they would bring it up their wives would be like no 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 so they stopped asking and they stopped bothering to ask in the first place so like you know teaching them how to communicate in a way that would get that no to not be no stop asking or this assumed no and actually have a conversation because mm-hmm. most i think maybe also this is something i learned from looking at you and dad most married women from what i can tell from the few that i know the many that i know If they knew that their husbands were genuinely, truly unhappy, and this is something they needed to be happy, Mm -hmm. they would have the conversation. Absolutely. Right. As long as it's not an abusive relationship or a toxic relationship. And so part of it was like giving these 50-year-old men who were raised basically in the same generation that you were, Mm -hmm. the skills and communication tools that they never would have learned otherwise. 
to have those conversations. Right. And so that is another aspect of what I was doing. And that was actually a lot of fun. And I like doing that a lot. And anyway, I think that's what that's, I've been up to. I think that's actually that whole piece of coaching and helping people with their apps and, you know, going as a friend to help them understand how to navigate these, these kinds of things is amazing. I think that, um, you know, everybody that has a life coach, everybody that has a financial coach, everybody that has, you know, somebody that takes them and shows them the right clothing to wear. Why can't there be somebody that helps people that need help with their communication, with how to navigate dating, with how to navigate having those kinds of difficult conversations around what they need to be satisfied, you know, in a relationship, either because of communication issues or because they don't know how to ask for, for what they need sexually um, or how to give what their partner might need or to have that conversation to say, what do you need? Am I satisfying you? What do you need? And I think that that the kind of role that you play in those things is really, really important, just as important as any kind of other life coach that someone would hire. Yeah. Okay. So there you have it, everybody. My and mom again, is supportive. I'm proud of you. Thanks, mom. There you have it, internet. My mom is proud of me. And look, <laughs> I wasn't raised in, uh, in a sexually repressed household. Who would have guessed? I don't understand why people assume that if you talk about sex all the time, you must be this, you must be wild and you must have been repressed as a kid. It's like, I remember writing, uh, I think you knew this on the literacy test in grade 10. I got really pissed off that they were making me take it because I was a bit snooty <laughs> and uppity still am sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but I was annoyed that they were making me take it because their essay question was, tell us about a goal you have for your future. I'm like, I am 15 years old. <laughs> So I wrote, when I grow up, I want to be a dominatrix because I don't have to have sex with their clients. I just get to beat them up for money. And that is what I wrote. And I was 15. And look at that. You're almost there. <laughs> I mean, you have friends that are dominatrix. I do, actually. Yeah. How do you say that? Dominatrices. Okay. That I do. Yeah. Well, that's because when I actually looked into it, when I got older, I was like, oh, no, this isn't for me. This isn't what I want. But this is great for somebody else. I looked into it. I was like, do I? No, I don't. <laughs> I really don't. But, you know, I think they thought there was something wrong with me for writing that as opposed to just like I was annoyed. That was my that was that was my version of a, of well, a silent protest. They had such protest. high expectations because of the kind of student that you were. They were probably expecting, you know, I want to run treaties. for government. No, yeah. I don't know. It just I was just annoyed that they were wasting my time <laughs> when you could be doing some really good learning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or whatever. Yeah. Okay, I have a sex ed story of the week for you. It's actually a back and forth conversation I had with one of my old BBYO teens. And she texted me directly when she saw my call for stories. And it's very interesting because I think this covers also a lot of other things that you have experience with. And so she basically said, hi, Ray. This is going to be a bit long. Hope you're doing well. I saw your Instagram story and wanted to tell you I got in trouble at camp this year for being asked questions about sex by my 15-year-old campers. So she is a counselor in her early 20s. Her campers are 15. Like Camp said, we have to commit to culture change because of what happened at Wahanawin. What happened at Wahanawin? Are you ready? I, she sent me a news article. Oh. One of it's all, They had a music camp and a thing. And I went to Wahanawin for two years. By the yeah, way. so they had um, a music instructor and he was essentially, um, essentially exploiting some of the underage campers. Oh dear, that's Which a problem. I should add, almost all campers are under 18 at that camp, but he was one of those like big figures and he was entering inappropriate sexual 
there was some inappropriate sexual misconduct between okay. him and some of these these campers who were like under 17. Okay. Which I want to add that the age of consent is actually, I think, 16 right now, it, which is different than, but but you can consent with things, but he was in a position of power exactly. over them. And yeah, that's why. There are some stipulations around. Yeah. That. Well, when they'll say with underage people, I'm like, can we acknowledge that they're of the legal, like they are empowered to consent and that's not what happened here. And right. that's important to acknowledge too. Okay. So that's kind of what happened. And then apparently there were some some other sexual assault accusations at campus here or something like that. There's there's always something. So she says, so we have to have a culture change because of what happened to Wahanawin, but I didn't realize that meant having to tell my campers to be abstinent. I feel like my camp regressed completely. It's been a rough summer. And I just feel like what is camp if your counselors aren't allowed to be, aren't allowed to talk about these things with your older mature campers. So then she says, I think that learning about sex, especially safe sex or even bad experiences from your staff and what not to do is an extremely important part of camp. Like, yes, there are some unnecessary things, but my staff taught us about how to put on a condom and dispose of it properly and that you need to pee after sex if you don't want a UTI. You taught me that. Um, Nobody ever taught me that. Not the condom thing. Yeah. I think it does completely differentiate from hookup culture. Oh, I asked her a few follow up. I think it does completely differentiate from like camp hookup culture because we're helping our campers understand good decision making and helping them learn from our mistakes. I think the questions just need to be need to be directed so the conversation doesn't get out of hand. The director, when I got in trouble, was like, we're not trained to discuss sex or sex ed. And she says, but it's not sex ed. It's real life. Sex ed taught me biology, birth control and abstinence. And these girls deserve to know it's more than that. It's just so disappointing that the fact that I got in trouble for having a conversation with these 15 year old girls about sex actually baffled me. And the camp director was a camper at camp. Like his wife was a camp hookup before they got serious. At which point I said, could you imagine a world where staff training included sex ed? Both info people need to know as, as counselors and how to answer questions from campers and what is appropriate versus inappropriate. To which she said, yes, I'd honestly love if staff had proper training, especially at camp. Given the hookup culture and how they're trying to make camp a culture change. Like you can't just say culture change and not teach us how to direct these things with campers. So that's her story. And this is one thing that I think has been a main point of contention. This was a big struggle for me when I worked at the youth group as well. Sex is such an integral part of those experiences. And kids are going to camp and they are learning about sex. And parents seem to not understand that. Even the ones who went to camp themselves. Yeah. What is happening? Is there, do, when you become a parent, does like a, a switch in your brain turn off? <laughs> like, well, I think there's a certain level of, Wanting to protect your children from the world um, so that they don't get hurt and they don't get pregnant or they don't get sexually transmitted illnesses or other things that, you know, may be problematic as they get older or into adulthood. However, um, at our camp this year, uh, as part of our staff training, we did do a little bit of, of discussion around what's appropriate and what's not appropriate to discuss with campers. Having said that, our oldest campers are 10 or 11 years old. It's yeah. a very different environment than an overnight camp where you've got kids that go until they become counselor in training and then counselors. Right. Um, and they're living together, basically adults free for two months. Yeah, that's also a problem. <laughs> Not really, but yeah. um, I think that I think that it really, it really is important that camp um, management, camp directors, camp whoever they are, um, understand that there's all sorts of things going on at camp, and 
putting your head in the sand and saying, oh, these things don't happen, whether it's, you know, campers hooking up or counselors hooking up or whatever it happens to be. And the conversations that are happening because these kids get very, very close to their counselors. They're living with them, right? Yeah. They're and they're living... not they're not their parents. So this is someone who's closer to them in age exactly. that they look up to as a role model. Exactly. And I think that the counselors need to get some training on where to draw the line on a conversation, what kinds of responses are appropriate, and what kinds of things, you know, they might expect to be asked about or the kinds of things they might hear about and how to respond to them. I think by saying you can't have those conversations, you create a situation like like they might have with their parents where they, there's no opportunity for them to learn about safety and health and well, if what's they can't okay. have those conversations, then how is that 15-year-old kid going to report the person who's been assaulting them? Exactly. What, right? Like if they, has, don't... they have to build that trust. And one of the ways that you build trust is by answering kids in an open, honest way. Yes, there's a line that has to be drawn at a certain point. You don't want counselors voluntarily, you know, discussing their own sex lives or, you know, yeah, those kinds thing. of things. But if they're asking questions, you have to be able to use your judgment to answer those questions in a way that doesn't cross the line, but still gives them answers that they need in order to feel comfortable enough to come to these counselors that they're living with to say if something's happening. Well, this is why I did that whole like mini series for YouTube just for fun when I had time over the pandemic. And one of the things that I had when I was, I think I was 12 when I went to overnight camp, I was not ready for overnight camp. I was not prepared for the, like genuinely, I wasn't prepared for the sexual nature of overnight camp. I was like a, a sweet, innocent kid who learned what a blowjob was literally that that year from Jackie who taught, not by doing it, but just someone said it. Oh. And then Jackie was like, this is what it means. And I was like, ew, um, things have changed. <laughs> anyway, so, um, but the point is I went to camp and there was a lot of flirting and there was a lot of like kissing boys. And it was at that age where it was about to start. And there was rumors of, oh, that girl flashed that boy behind the cabins. And looking back on it, they were like, she's a slut. Looking back on it, I'm like, or was it pressure, mm -hmm. right? What's the pressure that's being experienced here? Mm -hmm. And I remember learning about like nipple piercings from my counselor because she had one. So you could kind of tell and because bathing suits. And also one of the counselors, we were asking about virginity. And she's like, well, I lost mine really young. I was 16. You should wait longer, right? She's like, I don't think I was ready for it. And she's like, I don't think I chose the right person. Like, these are the kinds of things she was saying by great talking conversation. about. Yeah. And I just remember thinking like, this was the first time I was learning about these things or hearing about these things. And like, I, I wouldn't have gotten that anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And it's a shame that instead of empowering our counselors, like our young people with accurate information and healthy information, we're just so afraid of someone using it to exploit a kid. And here's the thing, exploitation and grooming follow certain things mm -hmm. and so you need to tell the other counselors to look out for that in mm -hmm. their peers. Yeah. And I think that's that's part of what needs to be in the training for counselors is, you know, what to expect and what to look at and what to, you know, be aware of or to keep an eye out for. Um, and also to be aware that these kinds of behaviors may not be from counselors that are their age. They could be from people that are the specialists who might be older, right? Mm -hmm. um, or 
other senior staff members. Um, not to say that everybody at camp is grooming and exploiting kids, because I'm absolutely not saying that. The majority, the vast majority of people that work at camps are amazing. They're amazing staff. They're great with the kids. They're they're wonderful. But there are those that well, get into a position like this because of their interests yeah. in grooming. Or there's just also like genuinely, there are just rapey assholes everywhere. Yes, there are. Like, and I think that's part of it. Like, it, like they're just they're going to be everywhere, and you can't say you can't punish one counselor for doing the right thing because this other counselor did not. And imagine if once again there was parental buy-in. Like, hi there, you need to understand that there is a chance your child will be learning about subject matter that is maybe not appropriate for them because they're at camp. And they're with a group of other kids their age yeah. who at their homes may be talking yeah. about these things. Or which is, right, they have older siblings, which is why they we are now, school. right? And they have the internet every oh, yeah. other time of the internet year. Internet and social media. Do you know that the average age of a kid first seeing porn, not watching it for fun, but seeing it is nine that's disturbing. Which is why we need to be educating kids about that earlier. Exactly. They see it when they're nine. They're a little bit scared. They're a little bit worried. They they maybe click away or maybe they're curious and they click back. But that's mm-hmm. how you end up with these 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds watching too much porn, right? Because it's it's not, there needs to be conversations around it and there needs to be parental block it, like parental yeah. blockers. But the point is that like you have kids who are as early as nine going to camp who've seen this thing on the internet and then they're, you know, sharing that information. So imagine if there was some sort of other program where instead they got parental buy-in saying, this is a factor. We want to do better. We are trying to change the culture to make a healthier one, which is why we are going to be doing consent workshops, bystander awareness, and teaching our young people about sexual abuse mm-hmm. at an age-appropriate way for each level. And we have hired external, you know, we, we're working with this external partnership and these external educators to form that curriculum to come into camp specifically on this week to teach it the way that you would at school. The interesting thing is that... Um... The College of Early Childhood Educators is has made it mandatory for all registered early childhood educators in the province of Ontario to do an extremely extensive, like five hours or six hours um, training um, on child abuse safety and awareness so that we will, as educators, understand, you know, the signs, what to look for. What does it look like if somebody is grooming a child? What's appropriate? What's inappropriate? When is it appropriate for someone to that's not a parent, someone that works at the daycare, um, to see a child after daycare hours? Those kinds of yeah. conversations. And part of the training, which was quite, I got to, that was quite disturbing, was, um, you know, actual firsthand accounts from kids, from young adults and adults who had been sexually abused by position, people who were in positions of power. And the other part that was even more disturbing was they had people that they were interviewing who were the abusers. And, you know, it's very systematic. About, right, like they themselves were also, or like... They weren't always abused as kids themselves, but some of them certainly were. Right. But just the positions that they put themselves in so they have access, access yeah. right? Um, and it was listening to them was really an eye opener. These, these interviews was really an eye opener. Um, and it's, it's something that people working with kids need to be aware of. And I'm yeah. really glad that the college is making this mandatory. Um, all teachers in Ontario 
also have to do this training, but I don't know if it's the same training that we're getting um, from family members who are teachers that I've spoken to. It sounds like they're doing it as part of professional development as a group, um, you know, and it, it can be quite, you know, a number of hours and stuff. So I'm hoping that it's as intensive as the one that I'm doing. Um, but I think that that's the kind of thing that camp counselors should be getting as well. Right. How do you identify it? How do you identify it in your peers? How, what's the report structure if you suspect that something is happening? And what is what are ways for you to make sure that you're not putting yourself in a position where um, this could happen, that that you could be seen to be doing mm-hmm. something well, I remember, like that. Yeah, when I worked at the youth group, you know, I have a dirty sense of humor. And you're spending a weekend with kids. And I think I told you that that was very much like a test in um, sleep deprivation for me a lot of the time. <laughs> and here's the thing. When you are that, for me, when I'm that sleep deprived, like oh, your filter's gone. Oh, my God. Yes. You've you've seen my filter. I people what think filter? I don't have one. I do. I have mm-hmm. one, but I need to be like alert and ready and like ready to go. And like, I can't be that sleep deprived. And I was like, I'm a not eight, nine hours of sleep a night person. I was getting maybe five when yeah. I was at these conventions. And then you add that on top of the fact that I got really burnt out from that job. So all of these were factors. And there came a point where I actually had to say to one of the young, younger teen, like one, I think he was grade 12. And I said, listen, you know, I think your jokes are funny. I will always be internally laughing at them because they're funny, but we need to stop with these kinds of jokes with each other because this is not appropriate. Mm-hmm. And he was like, what do you mean? I'm like, listen, this is what groomers do. And I'm not that like, this is what they do. I am not that I'm going to set up a boundary. We can't have these kinds of conversations. Like, I'm never going to get you in trouble for saying this with your peers. I'm never going to, like, I'm not that staff person. Like I, like I was saying, like, I'm not that staff person. I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to tell you to stop. You just can't do it in a program when you're leaving the room. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. we, that's not it. Um, but, like, we need to stop this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I said. And then he eventually came up to me and went, tell a dirty joke and go, I said, what did I tell you? And he said, I know you don't want to be grooming me. And I was like, Kate, this is, this is more boundaries. We're going to create more separation. I was yeah. like, teenage boys, right? Yeah, teenage boys. Could you imagine, I have said this before, if one of the boys who was being inappropriate turned around and I was like, yeah, let's go. They'd fucking shit themselves. <laughs> They'd be pissing themselves. You know what I mean? But yeah, also- but look at these look at these teenagers, these high school guys who wind up having relationships with teachers, female teachers. Well, yeah, but those Completely teachers, inappropriate. They, well, it's totally not only inappropriate, but it is very much like teenagers like to test boundaries. They are putting up like teenagers, that's part of it. They are, they see themselves as adults to a certain extent and they are testing boundaries. And let's be honest, in that peer group, if you hook up with a person in a position of power, that gives you cred. Yeah, for sure. There's all of that going into it. And it is the responsibility the of an to adult say, to say, Stop. no, yeah. this is enough. We're 100%. done. Like Absolutely. I get that maybe I was a bit inappropriate in that I told a dirty joke and I let us get to this point. And that was inappropriate of me. And I can acknowledge that, but this is where it ends. Yeah. Right? Right. And like, that was kind of where... Where, yeah, it was just one of those things where I'm like, I can't imagine an adult having been in that position, being in that space, having that kind of familiarity, no healthy adult is going, yeah, I want to hook up with a teenager. No, that's for sure. No healthy adult is. um, And a real teenager. We can all have our fantasies and the schoolgirl and like, whatever. Like, we understand that that's like pretending your mind. But like in real life, these are children. They're not developmentally where you are. Sure. I mean, when I was in junior high, I had a crush on one of my male teachers. And, you know, he even came with his wife to the amusement park that we used to go to for the summer that Zadie was working at. Zadie's grandfather in yep. uh, he- Yiddish for anybody who's wondering. And, um, you know, but 
that was my parents invited him to come to, you know, to the park to visit, and yeah, to visit with his wife, and yeah. he was with his wife and, you know, it was completely and totally innocent. Well, yeah, if you, you know, I had a crush, but there's no way it would have ever gone beyond me having a crush. And he probably didn't even know I had a crush on him. Yeah. Because you know? that's, because that's, because that's normal. Yeah. But and if he had, you know, he, he actually ran photography club after school and I signed up a, because I thought it was a cool thing to sign up for. And B, I had a crush on him. Yeah. And, you know, here you are with other kids, of course, in a dark room, lights yeah. are off in a dark room, developing pictures with this teacher. Like now, I mean, I wonder, I wonder in today's culture and in today's climate, is that something that happens? Is there like photography club where you're alone in a dark room with a teacher? I, I think that that kind of stuff, which is unfortunately always suspect now, which it wasn't then. Well, I guess the question is we need to do everything we can to prevent abuse while understanding that it's not preventable entirely. It's the same thing where just because we get really good at talking about consent and learning consent doesn't mean you're only ever going to have great mind-blowing sex. Like, true. do you know what I mean? Like, even though we're getting really good at the language of consent, doesn't mean people will never feel pressured. Doesn't mean people will never pressure someone else by accident. Doesn't mean that we're never going to get confused or misread something. I mean, even, even when you're married, even when you're in a committed relationship or you're married that, you know... There are times where you just don't feel like it. And you do it anyway. And you do it anyway because, (laughs) you you know, you do stuff for your partner that maybe you don't feel like doing, but you want your partner to be happy. And so, sure, there's there's always that, but not in a a situation where it's abusive. So this is actually, um, I tried to make a TikTok specifically about that and I got shit on a little bit and I was like, you can't, you can't, um... There's no cute, quick way to explain that marriage dynamic of like when you've been with someone for many years, how consent changes. Anyone who's been married for a very long time or even with someone for a very long time understands that consent is actually different from like that first time you're starting to get to know someone. You can read each other's cues a little bit better. You still need to be communicating. Of course. But that like you're not always excited for sex. It's not always an enthusiastic yes, but that doesn't mean that it's not consent. Absolutely. And like just because you said no doesn't mean that that's like an actual there's like no there's like, eh, no. And then there's, no, not tonight. Exactly. Those are two different things. And that is something that you learn in the context of a long-term relationship. But that's Absolutely. very hard to talk about publicly um, without a longer explanation, which you can't do in a one-minute video. So that's true. Yeah. That's very true. But going back to the to this counselor, I think that, um, I think that it's unfortunate that the education of the counselors um isn't happening to the degree that it should. And I think that it's important for these conversations to happen with um, management at camps because kids are asking their counselors. Mm -hmm. Kids are having these conversations. And And it's Jewish camp. It's not even Christian camp. Well, like that doesn't Jewish make it, camp. But that doesn't make it any different. Camp is camp. Kids are kids. Oh, I know. But like I'm saying that the other thing is kids are having conversations and they're not always getting it right. So counselors have to be able to say, you know what, that actually isn't actually how it works. Or you know what, that actually isn't really very healthy. Yeah. Or actually what you're thinking of is the clitoris and it's actually a lot bigger than you think it is. And it's really important for you to have pleasurable experiences and you should be demanding that from your interactions when you decide to do X, Y, Z. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Because I think that camp is one of the places where you do get to talk about pleasure. Like, you don't want to talk about pleasurable sexual experiences with your parent or the 50-year-old teacher in the room. 
True. You know what I mean? Like, true. Like you're learning that aspect. As she said, this isn't sex ed, this is life. This is true. And I'm going to assume that what she means by this is life is she's talking about all of those emotional parts of it that you can only learn by doing. Mm-hmm. You can have someone in a classroom teaching you how to recognize, you know, abuse. But until you're in real life in that own situation, like realizing it for yourself, you're not mm-hmm. going to understand or empathize or or learn. So I think there's definitely something to be said here for like, what are you learning outside of a classroom? And how are you learning that in other ways? And camp is such an important experience for that. It's why people send their kids to Jewish camp. Because I know that that's, it's like a Jewish life experience mm-hmm. that you're not going to learn in the classroom where you're just around other people who are like you in this way. Mm-hmm. It's important for those things. There's something else I wanted to say, but now I can't remember what it was. And it was about parents. Uh, I don't remember. Something to do with camp. <laughs> I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I got to meet a lot of the kinds of people who run camps working in the spaces that I did. They typically are very normal, wholesome people. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're not perverts like me who went into sex education <laughs> or or became latex designers, right? These are the latex designer does not end up working at camp. And so I've noticed that some of the people who become lifetime camp people, mm-hmm. they're so wholesome in it that they forget that they need to have space for things that are quote unquote not as wholesome. Mm-hmm. They're like, we're creating a wholesome family experience where parents trust them to send their kids to us. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. But like, but this is part of this is part of life. Yeah, right? exactly. And, you know, the joke when, you know, you guys were younger and, you know, my friends, kids were going to overnight camps and wherever they were going, you know, the joke was, and even before my siblings who are much older than I am, when their friends, kids would come back and the, the standing joke was, okay, now we have to deprogram them for two weeks Yeah, because they've come back with language that's not appropriate, that they feel isn't appropriate, you know, eating habits, their just general behavior. Yeah. Because I remember I left camp and I was like, pajama pants are pants. And then I left and I was like, pajama pants are not pants. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Those are not pants. (laughs) Although it was for a while, that was the style. Yes. Still. Yes. But um, yeah. So, I mean, people have to remember what camp is about, right? And what camp what learning opportunities there are that you don't get in school or even, you know, being part of a youth group, right? Could you imagine if the the camp health center had for the camp, the counselors who wanted it, STI testing because they're having sex. Oh, I'm sure they are. There's, and you know, the most common symptom of chlamydia is no symptoms at all. Mm -hmm. So I'm just saying like, I don't, could you imagine the outrage that people found out if like, you know, I mean, I don't know if there would be, but like if nurses just were able to like have people pee in a cup and test for STIs if they needed to, if that was like a thing that you could just privately go in and there would maybe be the nurse on site who could also while they're at it be like, here are condoms. Here's the sexual health information you need. Here are conversations to have with your doctor when you go home from camp. That would be brilliant. But no one's going to do it. Or maybe not yet. No, maybe not yet. Maybe in the future. Because like you keep beating that drum, Ray. Uh, connect me with the right people and I'll I'll work on it. Hopefully, hopefully one day the right person listens to my podcast. Listen, the Ontario Camping Association. If you know anyone. I don't know them, but I certainly can get you their contact information. Yeah, I'm sure they get a lot of different emails and information. But I guess part of it is even, yeah, it would be fun if I could reach out and do the kind of thing where, hi, I want to introduce myself. I'm a sex educator. I'm qualified to work with this this category of people or certified for this. But there's a lot of conversations around this. And I'd love for us to have uh, even a conversation around how can we create healthier interactions at camp. Maybe that might be worth it. Why having. not? Yeah. See how that goes. Remind me. I'll give you the contact information. Yeah. 
I, I want to have somebody that you can contact, but my goal for this year is to take some bystander awareness certification program so I can get in with the fraternities next year. Ooh, That's idea. the goal. Good anyway, idea. any last thoughts, mom? No, just that I think this is a really important conversation to be having. I think that, you know, and I know I said at the beginning and I don't want to, you know, I don't know if I can say flock a dead horse because that's not really very nice, but um, I just think that it's so important in any conversation that people are having with young children, um, you know, from an educator point of view or even at camp or whatever it happens to be, that the conversations are happening with the parents because the parents are the partners with whoever's working with their children. And you have to be sure that they understand and are, you know, working with you because you, you, you're not just working alone in teaching children. They're also learning at home. And everybody has different ways of communicating at home. But if you can get the parents on board and they understand what the purpose is and what the, you know, material is, then the chances are much better that you won't have teachers being investigated because of something that they're doing. And it's all about context. It's all about clarity. It's all about transparency and communication. And isn't that what relationships are about anyways? Yeah. Well, that's it for Sex News with Ray. Thank you all fuck demons for listening. You know where to find me if you need me. And uh, I guess that's it for the foreseeable future. Bye. Yeah, I'm going to end with a question mark. Bye. Bye. <laughs>